Hi, folks. Welcome back. This week on the podcast, we're talking about the do's, don'ts, myths, and realities of preparing to be a competitive applicant in the health professions. This is a really helpful episode for those of you just starting out your journey, or if you're coming to this and feeling a little underprepared, this can also really help you start to contextualize what these next few steps are going to look like. So we're excited to have you join us this week on the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast, the show to help all pre-health students on their journey to acceptance. I'm today's host. I am Kimberly Johnson. You've heard a lot from me in the past recently. <laughs> I am joined here with John Moses Bronson. Hi. We're going to talk about, we're going to do a little myth busting around preparing to apply. So all of that work that goes on in those years prior to actually conceptualizing and putting together an application. Yeah. It, you know, it's, there's no fast forward button. It just takes pure time. And there's a lot of misconceptions that can derail a great applicant. So I'm excited to like break all of this apart and hopefully give you some insight on what your individual journey can look like because we don't need, you know, 10,000 people who look identical going through this process later nope. on. It's not helpful. Nope. So I think what would be helpful is if we approach this kind of on that entry-level conceptualization of what it takes to be an applicant, right? When somebody's just starting off on this journey, doesn't know the ins and outs, the complexities of what it is to be a good applicant, they think, okay, I've got to get good grades, I've got to do shadowing, I've got to do volunteer work, and I need to do research. Yeah. I check those boxes. I've got it all. I'm a guaranteed in. <laughs> it's all good. There's no such thing, which is a bummer. It's, you know, it's it's a very competitive. And not only is it competitive, it's competitive with a lot of people who are really well qualified. Right? It's not like half the people who are applying are sort of like below average. I talk about it in terms of musical chairs. Oh, interesting. Um, where there's never going to be enough chairs for everyone who is deserving of a chair. Yeah. So that music's going to stop. Everybody's going to scramble for their spot. Yeah. And they're going to be people who be people who don't have a spot mm-hmm. who in a different scrambling of things yeah. would have a spot. Yeah. We, we hear from admissions officers. I know we miss people every year who would be great. We could fill our class three times over yeah. and it'd be that each group of people be equally competent. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's hard. You know, our job is hard trying to get students ready to, to be there. And it's equally hard on their part. You know, I, I know a lot of people will carry some guilt, especially when they're missing some of those students who, for whom this is going to make a, a lifetime difference. You know, there are certain students that are going to be successful at whatever. 
the certain students for whom this opportunity to go into the health professions is is world changing, not mm. just for themselves, but for the people around them too. And for the communities they might be serving. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a little, it's very complicated. Okay. So <clears throat> academics. Yes. We're going to go in with this assumption mm-hmm. that everyone applying, every reasonable candidate mm-hmm. is going to come with a solid basic science background. Yeah. That's just a given. Yeah. Well, there's prereqs. There's prereqs. And there's also recommended courses and suggested courses. And Mm -hmm. if we really want to be a solid applicant, we go beyond just the basic prerequisites Mm -hmm. and we say, what are some additional courses that are going to set me apart from the next person? Do I have a particular interest in genetics? Mm -hmm. Do I have a particular interest in population studies? What is it that I can pursue with my we'll call them elective credits yeah in undergrad to start creating my own individual approach my own niche yeah what's your point of view what makes your perspective important to have in this field because they're not just bringing in good students they're hoping to bring in leaders in healthcare who are going to help push the field forward. That's a lot harder to do, right? If all we were trying to do was bring in the best possible students, this would be a lot more of a cut and dry process. This would not be so hard if that's all they were trying to do, but that's not. We're trying to reconceptualize the entire healthcare system in some ways. Yeah. You know, it's not a single man in a small town 100, 150 years ago where they're like the main contact, the one professional, everyone goes to them regardless of what it is. We're talking about moving from paper files to um, electronic files. Now we have electronic files, but they're all sort of cordoned off in their own individual systems. So we have this healthcare network and then we have that healthcare network. Mm -hmm. You've got got your patient file on each of those, but they don't talk to each other. Nope. (laughs) And now we even have healthcare that's being delivered digitally, right? We have telehealth, and that's really changing how people are able to receive healthcare. It's a dynamic system. Maybe your niche is going to be uh, data analytics. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And maybe it's IST and like the design of like systems, right? Because we can't have these archaic, non user friendly systems when we're trying to get people in their 70s, 80s, 90s to access this type of healthcare, So we say this because there's not like a magical best major, right? And we talk about this a lot, I oh, feel yeah. like. And I get worried sometimes because I think a lot of other people who are providing advice around this say, well, I'm giving advice based off of numbers, And the majority of people that get in have a science major as their background. And I'm like, that's a bit of a selection bias. The other element here is that, okay, if you're a science major, you have the same major as a whole lot of other applicants. Yep. So what are you doing to set yourself apart from all of those other applicants who have a very similar academic background to your own? 
Yeah, there's certain benefits to being a science major for sure, right? It's so much easier to get in upper level science classes, which schools love to see on a transcript. So, yeah, it totally makes sense to want to be a science major. But you're right. It can't just be, well, I've taken upper level science classes because a lot of other students have. How has that informed your perspective? How has that given you a specific set of skills that are going to allow you to do something important or valuable in the future. And then we have the opposite side, which are our more liberal arts leaning students who have had to make far greater effort to Mm -hmm. take a good selection of upper level science courses. But then maybe they just have a really robust background in philosophy or sociology. And that's going to be a really interesting way of thinking that they're going to apply to their future practice that is a little bit different from how a science major might approach things. Yeah. I think the important thing here, like the myth is that like there's a best major and the reality is that there is no best major. There are benefits and there are challenges no matter what choice you make. You just need to chick, chick, choose the benefits that are most aligned with what you find interesting and important in the world. I think anyone who's come in for advising with me mm-hmm. has probably heard me say, yeah, but not all of your patients are going to be scientists. So how are you going to talk to them? Yeah. I just like to think of the challenge of making yourself appealing and approachable and interesting, trustworthy yeah. to people of so many different backgrounds. You know, I think about my own family, which really doesn't have any scientists in them, Mm -hmm. in it, um, all sort of humanists in one way or another. And I feel like that conversation in that exam room looks a lot different than someone who's going to be thinking purely about numbers and testing. And I, I don't even have the words for it, honestly, you know. Yeah, they're more analytical in the approach to the exam room, whereas some people are more there for like the social constructions of that room, right? What does this mean for me in my daily life as opposed to how will this change impact my number, right? An engineer is going to want to look at numbers and scores and percentages because that's the way that their brain is conditioned to work, right? So certainly a traditional science major will certainly connect better with them just naturally because of their inclination to those sorts of like organization of data and the importance of those numbers and scores. But someone who's, you know, maybe doesn't even have a high school diploma, it's not useful information to them. They can't do anything with it. Don't you love when you see that someone has been involved as an LA or a TA? Mm -hmm. To me, that says they understand that everyone learns differently, Mm -hmm. approaches information and learning and processing in a different way. And you have to adapt your approach and your language to the person you're sitting down with. Yeah. It's easy to think of the academic preparation as, you know, I have to do these prereqs and I need to do well in them. Check. All right, let's move on beyond it. But the academics also have the power to communicate your adaptability. And that's exactly what you're talking about here is that there's power beyond just the knowledge itself. And that's what 
I hope students get out of sort of this portion of this conversation is that the prereqs are just a skeleton. And what you do with it puts the muscles and the skin and, and well, hopefully clothing on them too. But <laughs> So rerouting a bit here. Uh, I got a C in OCHEM. Oof. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think I can apply anymore. Yeah. I probably need to do a post back. Yeah. I'm really worried. This is so common in our work. We have such high performers, type A students, that they cannot sit back and say, like, your ability to do OCHEM at all is impressive. I don't need you to be perfect at organic chemistry. And schools aren't expecting that either. We have literally heard from an admissions officer that they don't give an expletive. This is a PG podcast, so we cannot swear on here. I know I checked with our podcast hosting site. It has to be PG. <laughs> but we can't have explicit content um, that they don't care if you've gotten a C in organic chemistry. They care how you did in the next class after that. They care about whether you stuck it out that and too. kept that C or do you have a series of late drops mm -hmm. and it's all around the same subject matter. Yeah. Now a single late drop is not going to kill you. No, I'd say even not. two late drops isn't a huge deal. It's something to be worried about at that point. I'm a firm believer that there's almost nothing that is make it or break it. Yep. If the reflection piece is there, yep. if the forward movement the learning around that is there. Yeah. And I think if you do have like a harder time, it doesn't mean that you're never going to get into medical school. It might just mean that your journey is going to look a little different. There's nothing wrong with that. I've certainly had students with late drops and other challenges on that transcript who have gotten interviews and acceptances. I always think it's also kind of fun when somebody says that the way that they got their, um, role as an LA is because they actually didn't do so great in a class, but mm -hmm. the professor really appreciated their work ethic and their approach to a really big challenge that yeah. presented itself, especially when that person maybe was an all A student otherwise and wasn't used to yeah. such a challenge and didn't run away from it. Yeah. It's, it's easier to learn from someone who's also struggled. Someone who's never struggled a day in calculus, trying to teach, teach me calculus is not helpful. It's not approachable. Well, not only that, they don't know how to help me. If you've never struggled in something, you don't know how to help someone who has struggled, which is why I love the LAs and TAs like that, because they know where the struggle points are and they know how to help people overcome those challenges. As future healthcare providers, if you've never experienced a barrier before, how are you going to help a single parent navigate the barriers of receiving good care? If you're just like, well, just show up. Well, it's not that simple, right? Overcoming these challenges and these barriers help you to have the perspective needed to really help and support these, these really vulnerable populations. So we're talking here a little bit about communication. Yeah comprehension, mm -hmm. a little bit about thinking critically about certain materials and being creative in our approaches. Mm -hmm. So 
I think we can talk a little bit about that other academic-related box, mm -hmm. which would be research. Yeah. Oh. I, I take a controversial point of view with research. I don't know that it's that controversial, but you go right on ahead. <laughs> well, whenever I hear other people talking about research, sometimes I'm like, okay, I won't talk. Um, but here's the thing. I don't think that everyone needs to do research. And when I yeah. am talking to a student who is just really not excited about the idea of doing research and says, well... I guess I should find a spot in a lab for my last semester just because I know that I'm really lacking in research. I'm mm -hmm. like, hold on. One semester in a lab, that's not going to make any difference. Nope. You're not excited. No. This is not what you want to do with your career. You are taking a spot from another person mm -hmm. who is going to be so enthusiastic about this opportunity and absolutely run with it. And in a minute, we're going to talk about why research is absolutely fantastic for those individuals. But I would far rather see you investing your time into an area that prepares you in a way that you are excited and invested mm -hmm. and deeply involved or continuing something that you've already done for multiple years mm -hmm. Because there are other ways to develop some of the skills that other folks are going to get out of research. Yeah. But you also have to be honest with yourself when you're looking for the programs that you're mm -hmm. going to apply to and the institutions that you're applying to to make sure that's the right fit, mm -hmm. uh, that they're not looking for individuals with really strong research backgrounds. Yeah. But so. Not every lesson you learn is supposed to be a positive one. And what I mean by that yeah. is that. Not every experience you have is going to be like, yes, this is exactly what I needed. I'm so happy I did this. Sometimes lessons are not pushing you towards something. It's pushing you away from certain things. Not loving research is not indicative of not loving being a clinician or a healthcare provider. Those things are not mutually. You can still be intellectual. They can be mutually exclusive. And... Yeah. And into learning and keeping up with the newest details without actually wanting to be the person doing the research. Yeah. Those those things don't have to be the same person. No. And in most cases, they aren't. You can still think critically. Yeah. There yeah. are other... Yeah. Yeah. Research is not the only way. Like, I think a big myth was with research is that it helps you to, like, apply science concepts outside of the classroom. It's not the only way to do that. There's so many other ways. You know, I have a student that does um, like case competitions and I have students that do invent Penn State and things like that. And they're applying their scientific knowledge to other types of problems. And that's a wonderful way to demonstrate this. It doesn't have to be in this like historical version of what we've understood to believe this looks like. It doesn't have to be that. And for, and for many students, it's not. It's helpful, sure, and there's obvious benefits to it, but it's not universal. No. And and I don't mean to undermine the benefits of research well, because, I mean, I get really excited when I talk to someone who's mm -hmm. really loved their research experience. I mean, they get to take their learning to such a different level. Mm -hmm. They are such... I mean, the teamwork that goes into some of mm -hmm. this, the communication skills, just the building of really specific 
skills and then also being able to communicate and pass that on to the next generation Mm -hmm. of people working in that lab because you're going to go on, you're going to graduate and somebody else is going to take your spot and you can't lose that knowledge. Yeah. You got to pass it on to the next group of people. So it's just really interesting um, sort of that generational aspect to it, the writing. Yeah. Well, and part of it too is that when you love something, you're going to integrate those things into later applications, whether that's in a future classroom or in in future practice. If you don't love something, you're probably not going to want to integrate that into future practice or into a future classroom environment. Work on skill sets that you do want to pull into those environments, right? If you're finding that research is like not your baby, find a different baby, That sounds terrible, but you don't have to love every baby. And we just spent how long talking about how every applicant does not need to be the same, how what's going to make you a stellar applicant is what makes you different from the next person. Mm -hmm. Differences are good. Differences are okay. Yeah. Learn the lessons of the experience that you're having. Don't learn the lessons that you think you should be learning because you think someone later down the road is expecting you to get something out of this experience. If you go into research with an open mind and an open heart and you love it, that's wonderful. That's magical. Even if you don't end up doing research later in your health career. It's not wasted time. It's not wasted time. There's so much value in it. But also listen to yourself that if it's not happening for you, it's just... That part of this journey is not meant for you. So right now when we were talking about this, I was thinking about like a very traditional sense of research within life sciences. Yeah. Talk to me about (laughs) some of the examples that we were discussing offline before we hopped on here. Yeah, I think so many students are like, I have to do research in biology in the vertebrate physiology department or I have to do something clinically related and like but no that doesn't have to be the case you should find something that you really care about and are passionate about one of the most fascinating research experiences that one of my students ever had they worked in a lab on campus called the Anna lab it's an English language lab and basically all they studied was recall and recognition of a list of objects One list of objects was just the word boat, house, orange. And the other list had a or an before it. So it was a boat, a house, an orange. And all they were testing was whether someone could recall something better or worse if it had the a or the an in front of it. And it was fascinating what they were learning, right? I've seen people studying like... um, phone habits in teens Mm -hmm. and how that impacted them. I specifically had a student and I'm pretty sure, you know, this student like almost a hundred percent sure that she's met with you. Um, But she was looking at specifically that, that usage during COVID and how it impacted them socially. That's fascinating information. A and B there's transferable skills, no matter what type of research you do. Yeah. Your ability to adapt and learn and apply information is does not end just because it's not in a wet lab 
and you're not pipetting and using biochemistry, that but, doesn't stop the value. And when I think about the actual practice of medicine as a non-science person, you know, I know that my doctor has this basic science background. Mm -hmm. I know that that's there. Mm -hmm. But as a more humanities-minded kind of person, or even just not a scientist, yeah. that's not at the forefront of my mind when I see this person. Mm -hmm. I'm making regular conversation and not that scientists don't have regular conversation. They absolutely do. I always tell my students, remember, your professors are real people. They go to the grocery store. They have to pick their kids up from school. Sometimes they're feeling really ill or, you know, they've got to go check on their parents who aren't doing well or whatever it is. Some like, of them are going to metal concerts this Absolutely. Weekend. Some like, of them are also trying to get tickets to Beyonce. There you go. <laughs> so uh, there's – and there's so many different areas of research here. I mean, we're talking about – such like an institution like Penn State yeah. that you can develop some of those areas of expertise and skill that are going to be more apparent to people who have different backgrounds than maybe a basic yeah. science background. You know, maybe you're doing more social science research. Maybe you really want to emphasize that biopsychosocial model of health. Um, and so you're stepping outside of that basic science lab and you're saying, how does the how do my words impact the outcomes that I see in my patients? Yeah. What how do I improve my motivational interviewing skills? Yeah. What is behavioral change? Yeah. And how do how does it work? I have another yes. student of mine, and again, uh, just for clarity for our listeners, we will usually default to using she her pronouns. Sometimes I'll use they them regardless of the gender of the person that I'm talking about. But she did research where she was looking at, um, oh, no, I lost the story. Oh, no. Where were we at just Is it now? a neuropsych? We're talking about the, the reason why. I talked about behavioral change, mm. motivational interviewing. How does that work? What's behind that science? Oh, most of her work was just like talking with the the participants. You're not the social skills development in that type of research is so different than the development that you're going to get. And like, you know, I've had students that did research on bees. It was really cool what they did. Right. It's not traditionally what we think of, but the skills development was so different. Right. Those social skills development, that's going to help you with bedside manner, regardless of what health profession you go into or even studying bee behavior. That's what this person was doing. And it was all in the, the realm of how am I picking up on nonverbal cues of a bee? Wow. And what does that tell me? There's and they were what was nice about that student is she was able to talk about how it was going to translate into better service delivery later on with patients. Wow. Cool. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a straight line. It can you, be wobbly. You take your life in whatever direction mm -hmm. makes sense for you. 
yeah. If you are meant to be a physician, a dentist, a PA, whatever it Mm -hmm. is, you will find your way there. Yeah. Whatever timeline that is, is it's okay. And we've talked about timelines so often, but I think really what we're trying to emphasize here is that there isn't a perfect checklist of items. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, someone will say to me, well, Kimberly, how many clinical shadowing hours do I need to have? Mm -hmm. Or how many volunteer hours do I need to have? And I'm like, listen, what is going to work for one person is not going to work for the next person. No two experiences are the same and no two individuals reflections on those experiences are going to be the same. So I can't give you a number, but I can talk about our goals. Yeah. It's more about your outcomes than it is those inputs of hours. It's less about what you're putting in and more what you're getting out of it. Hopefully what you're involved in is just the start of what you want to be involved in for the rest mm-hmm. of your life. Yeah. And so you're not tallying those hours to get a check mark in a box. You're going because you love to go, mm-hmm. because you're fascinated by this topic, because you want to help and you know the way that you help mm-hmm. is through this mode. Yeah. I was talking to somebody today and they said, um, I've always known I want to help people. Now, tell me, John, how many times do we hear applicants say, well, I want to help people? I pretty much see it in like 70% of the first drafts of personal statements. And then I come back and I say, sweet, you're going to be a pre-health advisor? That's really cool. (laughs) My point being that there's a lot of different ways to help people. But this particular individual then paused. And she said, I know that healthcare and providing care for marginalized and forgotten populations is the best way for me to help people. Drawing a difference right at the very beginning Mm -hmm. between helping people generally or in different formats or, Mm -hmm. you know, subject areas, what, you know, parts of your life and knowing that the way that she is called to help is through this particular avenue of healthcare. Yeah. And I said, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for drawing that difference right at the very beginning and helping me understand Mm -hmm. why you know that this is the way that you are meant to help people. Yeah. And when, when I get students like that, then I want to take a look at their involvement. Because I think that for a lot of students, there's, again, I think we have a checklist mentality that sort of gets brought in. You know, I'll join some pre-health organizations. I'll be good. But if this is a population that you want to help, I want to see the proof in the pudding. So what I loved is that this person sheepish, sheepishly said, so I haven't really joined the club for it on campus. Mm. And I paused and I was like, Okay, well, tell me more about your involvement. Turns out that they have been working in this field in an entry-level position Mm -hmm. for years, Mm -hmm. since before even starting their undergraduate career. Yep. As a teenager. Yep. I was like, okay, your actions speak for themselves. Yep. Tell me everything you've learned. Tell me why you're still at this after this many years. What keeps you coming back? Yeah, I think... Involvement doesn't have to look one way, right? 
you do not have to do things for free for them to have value. Absolutely. And in fact, sometimes having those paid experiences gives you completely different insight. You have a higher level of responsibility. Generally, you will be responsible for, you know, training other people. You're going to have a little bit more autonomy because you're trusted to provide a service. Things are trackable back to you. And there's real power in that. And I think a lot of students really undervalue those experiences because it's not being given for free. That's not a luxury that all of us have. And thankfully, admissions officers know that. Hallelujah. Yeah. I think... Especially for PA school. Oh, yeah. It's wild. Some of these schools want you to have thousands of hours. Mm -hmm. The problems that would arise if they required them to be unpaid. Oof. And this is actually a change I've seen in PA school admissions over the last few years, is there used to be a certain requirement that certain numbers were paid versus unpaid. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those designations have gone away. Yeah. Which is and I used to see that printed on websites and I don't see that anymore. Which I think is important. I think that's very important. I also remember not too long ago hearing a medical school admissions dean say, I don't care if you've shadowed. Controversial. Stopped right there. They were like, what good is shadowing? You're just standing useless in a room. Mm -hmm. Now, some people will say shadowing is really great for getting a variety of experiences Mm -hmm. and seeing a variety of environments. And I will advocate for that, certainly. It's valuable. It has its value. But it is a very passive experience. Yes. Now, it's a great way also to develop some mentors. Mm -hmm. And to get a deeper understanding of why one particular professional or another works the way that they do. Yeah. But it has its place just as paid experience also had its has its place and real mm-hmm. values to it, like the higher level of expectation and responsibility. And yeah. yeah. Shadowing is like watching football. I don't do a lot of that. I, you know, me neither. I, any sport, realistically. But it's like watching football. You can watch it all you want. But if I give you that ball and tell you to go throw a touchdown pass. Oh, uh, yes. Perfect example. You're, you might really struggle if you've never had that ball in your hand. You might not even know how to hold it. You might not like it. Shocking. I, so for me, my favorite sport to play is soccer. I love it. I can play it for days and be thrilled. I hate watching it on TV. It's boring to me. The most exciting sport to me on TV is hockey. I would fall on my face so fast if I was asked to go play hockey. I also don't know all the rules. I have to say I do not go to the ballet very often. But I used to put 40-plus hours a week into practicing. Yeah. It's it's doing something and watching mm, is very different. Great analogy, John. Sometimes they come to me. I appreciate you. (laughs) I live my life in analogies. They really help. But, yeah. That's a good way to think about it. I really think of shadowing as like a starting point. And what decisions are you making as a result of that? If your decision is to shadow more... What are you undecided about? 
What are you unsure of? What are you trying to gain and to learn by doing additional shadowing experiences? If you're trying to get a greater breadth of understanding of this field, that's a wonderful reason to continue to shadow more. If you already know that you love this, that's the wrong way to, to go to the next step. So, you know, when I see someone who has three, 400 shadowing hours, but hasn't done anything beyond that, I get really worried. It's like watching Grey's Anatomy. It sounds cool on television, but like what happens when you are put in front of a patient to help? I also sometimes ask people to sort of take off the labels of paid, unpaid, work, shadowing, volunteering, take off all the labels and just think about your ultimate goal and the values and the type of professional that you want to be Mm -hmm. and just give it all to me. Tell me everything that you have done that is furthering that goal, that is bringing you closer to achieving that, to being that that, that person that you dream of being in the future. Yeah. It doesn't matter matter what the label or the title is. What I want to see is that you're approaching that goal from multiple directions over a longer period of time and a deep level of commitment. I want to see the transformation. Mm-hmm. I'm very bored by people who come in and say, like, I did this and it made me want to do it more. I did this and it made me want to do it more. Okay. But how did you change? If, if you are the same person after these experiences as you are before them, I don't think you approach those experiences in the right way. Or you didn't have the right ones yet. No, we need to always be growing. I mean, yeah. anytime. You know, so this is as a, like, older teenager, I heard this term in politics a lot called flip-flopping. <laughs> And it was always really negative, like so-and-so is a flip-flopper or blah, 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 flip-flopping on this on this issue. like issue or something. Yeah. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out why being a flip-flopper was horrible because I had always been taught that growth is sort of what you're always aiming for in life. You are always yeah. looking to continue growing mm-hmm. and evolving your point of view and your understanding of different topics. And so for me, I was like, well, isn't flip-flopping like a natural part of life? Like you learn more, your mindset yeah. grows. You, you get more information get a, and yes. you incorporate it you adjust. into your understanding. And I was like, I think we should strive to be flip-floppers. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, yeah. Now, I think of it as someone who is so uh, I used to ski when I was in high school. I started off very bad at it because I thought that I was doing something wrong because I was going down the hill straight down it. And I was like, this is terrifying. I don't like this. And I would fall a lot. And then someone explained to me that like skiing is more about feeling the changes and responding to them as they're happening. So I think of it more as skiing as, a, as opposed to flipping back and forth between things. You're responding to the stimuli that you're getting mm-hmm. and you're course correcting as you go along. And that's what helps you stay upright. It's when you fight against these changes and this new information that you are getting or this new stimuli, that's when you fall. That's when you're not 
learning and growing and getting better at something. We want to be receptive to change. Yeah, it's very important. We want to important. see where, when change is going to move us forward, yeah. closer towards our goals. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's scary. You know, I had a student, will you she, her pronouns, and she started off her time at Penn State believing 100% that they were going to be a pediatrician. And I said, I think you need to work at a camp for young kids. Came back and did not want to do that anymore and was terrified, wouldn't really talk about the experience much because she had not allowed herself to feel beyond being a pediatrician. That's similar to a story that I tell often. It's not really a story. It's just I know a fair number of deans within the medical school community Mm -hmm. who are very transparent about starting medical school, being very vocal about what specialty they wanted to go into Mm -hmm. and ending up in a very, very different specialty once they understood the realities and had the exposure to enough specialties and enough enough depth of exposure to really understand where they would best fit. Yeah. and, And when someone's reading your application, if they're reading your experiences and you're saying, like, I went into it with this expectation, but this is the reality of what I got out of that, they're going to connect to you on a really personal level. This is a person who can really grow and be transformed by the the medical school or dental school or PA school experience and come out on the other side having a really fully well-informed viewpoint of what's next. I'm very unimpressed with the people who are like, I wanted to be a doctor since I was four. And I'm like, but you've never had experiences outside of that. If you've only allowed yourself to bowl in one lane, you're not that good of a bowler. Because if you go to a different lanes with different setups, different ball returns, different like warps in the floor, you're not a good bowler anymore. You know how to bowl down one lane if that's all you've ever let yourself do. Y'all should see my face. I had not thought about all the intricacies of bowling. I admit I've gone like five times in my life, so I'm learning a lot here. Well, so, like, I grew up in the South in the country country. So, like, like, bowling and sports were, like, big, exciting items for us because we had to travel, like, an hour to get to Yeah, we just hang out in the Walmart parking lot. Oh, see, that assumes that you are old enough to drive a vehicle. Mm. Yeah. I I lived in a place where there were more horses than people. And it was not a close margin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, different lived experiences. Very different lived experiences, yeah. And that's fantastic. And that's why we have different people who return to each one of us for advising. It's because... Different people resonate with our styles and our yeah. lived experience and the way that we communicate. And we want the same thing from our healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to build that trust. Yeah. Part of building that trust is having that like diversity of experiences, but it's also feeling that the person in front of me is being real. And so when you're picking things to do, like I don't, care that you're like I'm doing AED because it's impressive I'm gonna do the American Heart Association because people know what that is I'm not my roommate signed up for this I'm gonna go with them I'm gonna do the Red Cross because that's really easily health related that one drives me nuts but if you don't care like why did you choose it if it's a low-hanging fruit it's gonna look that way on an application 
and you're not going to be able to talk about it with passion if all you've ever do done is help set up blood drives. What is that telling me about you? It's it's too it's telling me that you've picked easy things, right? And so once you go through this like process of self exploration, another like huge myth is that like all schools are created equal, right? And we have an episode that talks about school choice. You can listen to that when you get closer to application when you're sort of refining things. But one of the things that I want to push you on now is I don't care if you're a first year student, you can start looking at schools now. Oh yeah. Start doing their information sessions. If it's a break time and they have like a school tour, go tour. You know, what's really helpful to decide whether or not you want to go to medical school or dental school, go visit one. Go meet their students. Meet the stu- meet the faculty, meet the admissions officers. Look at the classrooms. If you want to go to medical school and you walk into a cadaver lab and it's like not for you, mm-hmm. that's something you need to understand. Because there are some medical schools that don't have cadaver labs to teach anatomy. That's helpful. You can't start too early in the school exploration process. Because it's going to help you see, like, what is resonating and connecting with me. Oh, I'm looking at a lot of schools that are really involved in their communities. That's telling me something. I'm community-oriented. So as I'm making decisions, I need to lean into my desire to want to serve the community and make choices that align with that. But if you don't see how that manifests at your next step, you're not going to understand as well how to make the right choices for you now. I often talk about getting into medical school, dental school, PA school mm-hmm. as often our applicants view that as like an end goal. Yeah. Because it's such I mean, so much effort goes into the actual it's application. A huge it's huge. But it's not the end goal. No. It's barely the middle. No, it's it's a different starting point. It's a different starting point. There we go. So Getting an idea of why specific schools resonate with you early on allows you to start thinking much earlier Mm -hmm. about where this path is going to take you. If I get into XYZ program that has these values, that will allow me to get the training that I need to achieve this next level of goal beyond graduating from medical school, dental school, PA school, whatever it is, is going to take me to that next level of community community involvement yeah. that I'm only now beginning to wrap my mind around. So I'm going to hit you with another really good analogy that I just came up with. Every student that we work with is a seed. And you're a different type of seed destined to be a different type of plant. And that's like you're just starting your journey. And you're convincing these different schools, their different soil types, that you, they should plant your seed in their soil. Because you could be the same seed, but in different soils, you are c- looking mm-hmm. completely different. John, that is so good. Right? And some places, you're just not going to grow. Y'all, he is on today. I know. <laughs> so you need to understand where it is that you can grow to have an idea of what what you're going to turn into later on. Because if you plant yourself in the wrong soil, you're not going to grow into the type of plant that you want to be. And for many people, they can grow into wonderful, beautiful plants in different types of soil. But you need to understand where you want to get to and how 
that school is just the place for you to grow closer. And you're going to get transplanted when it's time to go to residency. Mm-hmm. I'm really just hitting this. You just keep going with it. <laughs> you, But if you don't have that good start, and if you're not on your way to becoming who it is that you want to become, you're going to struggle no matter where you're at. If you're a bad seed, you're not going to plant, you're not going to grow no matter how good the soil is. I'm going to wrap this up for us. Nothing is in isolation here. Yeah. Everything that you do on your path to who you will be remembered as. There are just all sorts of threads and relationships. And Mm -hmm. we've just got to tease out all of this nuance of what makes you you and what makes you what is going to make you the person that you want to become. Everything that you do from the very beginning Mm -hmm. is playing into that in some way or another. Yeah. Whether it could be, I mean, it could be something like learning that you don't enjoy research or you really love research, you know, whichever way it goes. Uh, And then all of that you're sort of building on Mm -hmm. to find the right environment for you to continue growing in professional school. And that is a stepping stone to the sort of professional that you're going to be. Yeah. We're nothing if not a series of choices and lessons learned. And if you're not listening to the lessons, you're not going to get to where you're trying to be so this is this is so important because so many students want to become what other people want them what they think other people should make them be particularly common with our first gen students but i think we see it with a lot of people someone told me to do this so i'm going to do this my roommate's doing this yeah this person sounds like they're more qualified yeah. than I am. This Maybe doctor just... I shadowed in ninth grade told me I needed to do this. You do you. Yeah. But there is no one right way to do this. It's about exploring your journey to this. You know, we're going to help you make sure you have the right kinds of experiences to help you tell that story later on. But... It's not going to be a universal way of doing it. It's so personal. We're going to help you figure out what it means for you if you're struggling to do that on your own. But we're also going to give you the skills that you need to be able to start to do this on your own. We don't want people who are reliant on us. We want to build students who are capable of advocating for this themselves and others. We are doing skills development in oh, our absolutely. work. Yeah. So. You know, coming to us is not, we're not going to just like give you all of the answers. We're going to ask you the right questions. We're going to challenge you. We're going to give you some threads to pull. And if you pull them and you don't like where it's taking you, you back up and you pull a different thread. That's why I end almost every meeting with, so here are some immediate takeaways. These are some of the things I want you to start thinking about. Mm -hmm. Once you've had the opportunity to explore and go a little bit deeper, Let's talk again. Yeah. It's never like a one-time thing. And it shouldn't be. These are conversations. They're not instructions. And I think that's like the the biggest part of this is if you can train yourself to think of your journey as a conversation and not a list of instructions to follow, you're going to have a much easier time. Yeah. Because you're going to be checking in with yourself a lot more often, be thinking about like, well, am I getting out of this what I want to? Oh, this isn't working. I would have continued to do this for years. I hope it can make you much more confident in yourself. Yeah. 
it's so hard as as pre meds as pre health students. You're always comparing yourself to the next person, and mm-hmm. and that's just never going to work out. No, because everybody's qualified. Absolutely, and the more you reflect on who you are as an individual, the more confidence I hope you'll have, mm-hmm. because you realize that you don't have to go out and check the same boxes as your roommate is, mm-hmm. or as that person who's sitting next to you in class is. Yeah. Everybody's going to have a slightly different take, and that's what we want. Yeah. Even the person that you think is the most well-qualified, best-prepared, sometimes they don't get in either. And they all are also having their own doubts about the process. If my students who do very well make the right choices for them at the right time based on lessons that they've learned from previous experiences, I'm so proud of so many of my students this cycle this past cycle that's sort of wrapping up because these are students that we've had the pleasure of working with for years. This is, you know, Kimberly and I have been here for a good bit now and this has been a really like fun cycle to be a part of Mm -hmm. because these are students that we have really seen grown and develop. It's been good. It's been really good. You know, I, in my past, I've always sort of like job hopped a little bit. I could do this for a while. Oh yeah. Because it's just so fun. Y'all make this job fun. Yeah. And that's why I don't want you to lose the fun in the preparation. You don't need to take this too serious. I think that's another, like, the final myth to bust, because we need to wrap up, is that if you are not having fun and enjoying this process, there is a fundamental failure in the approach, and we need to check into it. Mm -hmm. If you're not enjoying the journey... Perhaps we're on the wrong trail. And the hardest part about that Mm -hmm. is usually admitting to yourself that it's the wrong trail. Yeah. But if you can approach it with the idea that being on the right path is going to be immensely fulfilling, Mm -hmm. is going to be fun, you're going to want to do it every single Mm -hmm. day or hopefully every single day. Yeah. Oh, that's so much better than pushing forward and pushing through on something that's so incredibly difficult and then mm-hmm. also just not worth it to you. Yeah. People grow, they change. Sometimes something that you've been working towards just doesn't make sense anymore because you've grown. And I will say, I said this before we started recording earlier, that we need people in these healthcare medicine adjacent roles Mm -hmm. to make everything that happens in patient care possible. So you can have a really important role. You can have a really fantastic professional career outside of being a doctor, outside of being a dentist or PA. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just about finding what's the best fit for you. And so a a lot of this is exploratory and checking in with yourself along the way to say, like, do I still like this? Yeah. Have my goals shifted? And all that's fine. I love to talk about it. Yeah. I know. I'll never get tired of it. All right. So I think we've gone long enough. Bye, y'all. Yes, we'll see you <laughs> next week on the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. The Penn State Pre-Health Podcast is a production of the Pre-Health Advising Office and the Eberly College of Science at Penn State University. It is produced, edited, and promoted 
by the pre-health advising team. The views, opinions, and advice shared during this podcast are that of the hosts and any guests only and do not necessarily reflect the best advice for every student at every institution for every health profession. This is a nonprofit podcast made for the purpose of better serving pre-health students across the university system.